And let's take our Bibles opening to 2 Timothy. We've been working our way through the pastoral epistles, which include 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and also Titus. And uh, I originally had in mind to go from 1 Timothy to Titus and then to 2 Timothy, because that is the chronological order of the books. However, uh, the more I contemplated it, the more I thought going from 1 and then to 2 Timothy would be best, because the author, the recipient, are the, sames, are the same, and the themes overlap in ways that I think would be beneficial for us to continue to see um, successively. Now, you really do need your Bibles open. Uh, we are expository preachers here. We are actually expounding the words of the text. And so it won't make a lot of sense to you if you don't read the text uh, as we're preaching and go to it as we point to it. Uh, the authority is in the text. And so it's important that you have the text open. Even though this morning our focus is on the first seven verses, I would like to read the entirety of chapter one of Second Timothy so that you may see the power of this passage and what is to come uh, next time as well. Let's briefly pray before reading God's word. You have told us, Lord, in your holy word, that as it relates to the upbuilding of your kingdom, it is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, saith the Lord. And so we feeble, frail sinners who are called to expound and hear and listen to the text and receive it into our lives are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We believers in Jesus now and dwelt by the Spirit open our hearts before you and ask that you will fill us with your Spirit and give to us a great thrill in hearing your word and taking it to heart. And may those who are strangers to grace who do not know the Lord Jesus May they hear the word this morning through the powerful working of your spirit, and may they be effectually drawn out of darkness into the glorious light of the kingdom of God's dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher 
and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Now, people of God, we are privileged this morning to come to the very last letter that was written by Paul the Apostle, his very last. It was written in Rome as he was imprisoned somewhere around 67 A.D., You will recall that Nero torched Rome, and then he blamed the Christians for this, and that made Christianity illegal, and that was in 64 AD, soon thereafter leading not only to the imprisonment of many, but especially in particular the Apostle Paul. In chapter 4, Paul urges Timothy to come to Rome. He really wants to see him. He longs for him, and he needs him. And the letter is very warm and very personal. Paul is near death, and he knows it. As he nears death, what does he think about? What would you think about if you knew that you were about to die? The Apostle Paul is about to die, and he thinks about the gospel, about the church, about doctrine and preaching and passing on the faith. And chapter 2, verse 2, summarizes the theme. What you have heard... From me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's his burden throughout the pastoral epistles, but especially in this last letter written by Paul. Now, when Paul writes this, he is an old man. He's in his 60s, and you may say that's not so old, but remember, life expectancy then was different than it is now in the providence of God. In Philemon, in verse 9, he refers to himself as an old man, and Philemon was written several years before this book, 2 Timothy. Paul then is in his late 60s. He's old, but he's not only old because he's in his 60s, he's old because he's labored so hard. He's been beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, He's worked to the point of exhaustion. He has constantly studied the Word of God, constantly preached and traveled. Paul is worn out. Now keep your marker here and turn to 2 Corinthians for a moment. 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. Note how the Apostle Paul speaks of his labors in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 23. 2 Corinthians 11, 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with a far, far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. Now the thing to remember as we come to 2 Timothy is that what he says about his labors in 2 Corinthians, this was written in mid-career. How many more beatings? How many more fastings? How many more shipwrecks? How much more toil is added by the time Paul, the old, worn-out man, writes this last loving letter to his protege, his son in the ministry, Timothy. And so he's in prison for the last time. Almost certainly the Mamertine prison in Rome. I don't know what you know about that little dungeon but they would fill it with, um, with prisoners. There was a great uh, door, and when the prison got so full, uh, not that everyone died this way. Paul didn't, for example. He was removed from the prison and later almost certainly beheaded. But often what would happen in that prison is that uh, behind that door was the city sewage. They would lift the door, and they would flush the men out, and then they would drop others down into the dungeon. That's where Paul the Apostle almost certainly is kept in prison. All because he loves Christ, he loves the gospel, and he loves sinners, but the world hates Christ and hates the gospel and therefore hates Paul. No wonder then that H.C.G. Mole found it hard to read 2 Timothy without something like a mist gathering in the eyes. Here he is in dungeon. In chapter 2, verse 9, bound in chains as a criminal, he says, In chapter 4, verse 6, being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come, and he writes his last letter. And as old men will do, the Apostle Paul reminisces. But first, let's see this. Paul's authority, Paul's authority, and we see it in the very first verse in the greeting. Look at it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He identifies himself as Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. An indispensable qualification of apostleship was to have seen the risen Lord. Paul saw the risen Lord on the Damascus road, turned about face, was called to be an apostle, and fulfilled his calling of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And he is still Christ's apostle, even though in prison. Paul's apostleship originated, he says, in God's will. It was not self-appointment. The purpose of this apostleship was to proclaim life that is promised in Christ Jesus. And that life is still promised in Christ Jesus and held out before you today. There is no life but only death if you do not have Christ. There is life in faith in Jesus Christ in the one who died and rose for sinners. The recipient, according to verse 2, Timothy, my beloved child. In 1 Timothy 1, he spoke of him as my true child in the faith. Timothy was almost certainly converted under Paul's ministry in Lystra in Acts 16. 
Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. Now, why does Paul write a personal letter and yet underscore his authority in the beginning? I know you know the little letter of Philemon that was written to one of his friends. That one begins, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Why did he not write more in that vein? There are two reasons. One is because the Apostle Paul knows that other people will read this letter, not just Timothy. As a matter of fact, when we come to the end of the letter, in chapter 4, where Paul says, The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you, that you is plural. He writes a personal letter to Timothy, but he knows that it is God's word and that others also will read this epistle. And the second reason that he writes with with authority is because, well, you will notice as you work through 2 Timothy how many imperatives there are, how many commands there are, one after another command given to Timothy. Paul is warm, he's fatherly, he's even brotherly, but he's also an apostle. And as such, he must command In 1 Timothy 4.11, he said to Timothy, as a preacher, command and teach these things. When God's word is preached, there must be command. Those hearing the letter will hear the authority of the risen Christ who commissioned Paul, and the letter is authoritative over us as well. And so he writes this warm, friendly letter, but he, in the beginning, sets forth the fact that he's writing by divine inspiration with apostolic authority, And this letter, people of God, is a letter that stands over you and over me this morning also. You know, I really wonder if we really understand how much we need to immerse ourselves in God's Word. If we understand that this is the mean that the Spirit of God uses to transform our thinking and our feeling. And if we do not spend time in God's Word, however do we expect to detect the voice of the serpent in the cacophony of messages that flood our senses every week. We will be misled if we do not hear the voice of God in the Holy Scriptures, covering not some narrow area of religious life, but all of life, because Christ is Lord over all of life. And so he writes to Timothy this letter from prison, this warm but authoritative letter, And what does he desire for Timothy? Well, in verse 2, he says, This is what I desire for my beloved child, Timothy, grace. That is to say, God's favor to the ill-deserved sinner. Mercy. God's compassion toward those who have broken his law. And peace. Peace, the result of the cross of Jesus Christ and the reconciliatory work through his shed blood. This is what I long for Timothy, my child. How motivating it must have been for Timothy to hear this. And it should be for you and for me as well. For those of us who have the opportunity to disciple others, and all of you who are parents have that opportunity daily, can you think of anything that you could wish for your child or for who? ever the person may be that you are discipling, can you think of anything greater than to say, I wish for you, desire for you, grace and mercy and peace? That's what Paul, out of his tender, compassionate, authoritative heart, wishes 
for his protege in the ministry, Timothy. But now the second thing you will see is that Paul remembers. So we turn now to Paul's remembrances as they are found here in the thanksgiving in the beginning of this epistle. Remember, he's an old man, and it's the tendency of old men to live with memories. He's remembering some things. Paul, first of all, is thankful as he remembers his own heritage that God has given him. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. The Apostle Paul then is thankful for his own heritage. And what he means by his ancestors may not mean his own personal family, but more than likely, Paul is saying, I've trusted the same Christ who was trusted by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the prophets, those who relied on the promise. Now remember, Rome is now distinguishing Christianity from Judaism, and Christianity is now illegal. But the Apostle Paul sees the unity of God's people throughout the ages. What a heritage. That Judaism is ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, and true Judaism is Christianity. And the Apostle Paul can say, my ancestors have served him, and now with a clear conscience, I serve him as well. I'm remembering that. Secondly, he says in that very same verse that he remembers Timothy and prays for him night and day in prayer. Now, he simply could have said, I pray for you always. But he wants to underscore that this young man is so in his heart that he is praying for him night and day. He loves Timothy. The word for prayer here means supplication, entreaty, urgent requests to meet needs. Timothy is in Paul's heart and he is down on his knees pleading for this young man and for his ministry night and day. Again, how moving, how motivating. You know, there are people for whom I pray often. There are people also for whom I pray daily. They're in my heart. And I often tell them, you know, I pray for you every day, often throughout the day. I pray for you constantly because of my love for you. Is your heart knit to some Christian that way? Is there someone for whom you pray night and day? You are constantly pouring out your heart in prayer? Well, Paul does this. But Paul also remembers Timothy's tears. He says that in verse 4. Look at it. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Probably the tears at their last parting. Now, um, I'm a Scot, I'd probably give you a handshake, maybe a little bit of a hug. Uh, these were ancient Near Easterners. When they parted, they broke down in tears. Remember the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? They wept on Paul's neck. And the tears he's remembering almost undoubtedly are the tears when he and his young protege were last together. What a moving thing it is that the gospel can so knit together people that we weep with love for one another. And Paul says, I long to see you. I just long to see you. Epipatheo, it means to yearn. I yearn for you. 
do you have anything at all like this in your heart for other believers in Jesus? Any sense of the communion of the saints that would make you yearn to be with the people of God? Or do you take for granted the fact that you are a part of his family? But Paul remembers also Timothy's sincere faith in verse 5. I am reminded, you see these constant references to remembering, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so he remembers Timothy's sincere faith. On you pakritu pisteos. You hear the word hypocrite? Your unhypocritical faith. It is from the heart. I'm reminded, probably because something happened to remind him about Timothy. Maybe Timothy sent a papyrus note to him, perhaps a message through someone. We don't know, but something happened. It triggered in his memory, oh, the sincere faith of this young man, Timothy. Homer Kent says, so often it is the faults of Christians which serve as reminders to others. But you see here, it was sincere, genuine, lively, real, true faith. When others look at you, is that what they remember? And then Paul remembers, Paul remembers Timothy's godly grandmother and mother. Look at verse 5 again. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. In Acts 16.1, we read, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So they were there in Lystra. Alfred Edersheim, the, the great Jewish Christian scholar, notes that there was no synagogue mentioned at Lystra and not even a place of prayer. Nonetheless, even though there was evidently no place for public gathering to worship, Timothy's grandmother and mother taught Timothy the sacred scriptures. Look at chapter 3, verse 15 of this epistle. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How from childhood? Well, we read it here. His grandmother and mother taught him Bible, the Old Testament, the sacred scriptures. Now, this is every parent's calling. And it's a wonderful thing that the Apostle Paul can say, as I remember you, one of the things that really stands out is your, your childhood was characterized by a loving grandmother and mother who taught you the word of God. You know, J. Russell Machen said that not only did he learn the shorter catechism at his mother's knee, but by age 10, his mother had taught him to recite all of the kings of Israel. I know a minister in Scotland whose mother had him memorize the entirety of the Westminster Confession of Faith in childhood. Now, I'm not saying it has to look like that in your home. But I am saying that it's your obligation and responsibility to disciple these little ones. You know, the tendency today is to say, let children alone decide for themselves. I hear that constantly, which denies original sin, denies the truth and reality that we're fallen, that our children have a trajectory against God, and that they need to be called to faith and repentance. No, our children 
will not decide for themselves. It's already been decided for them. They're little sinners fallen in Adam. They need grace. They need the gospel. They need parents who will teach them the truth and pray that God will use that truth to open their hearts. And so we have an obligation to teach our children. I recently read how a certain former seminary professor who was well-known and influential said he was proud for not correcting his six-year-old when he expressed some infidel views of infidelity. He said, and I quote him, I'm proud of that little six-year-old who trusted himself enough not to play games. David Murray, in an article responding to this former professor, said, trusted himself enough? The whole message of the Bible is trust God and not yourself. To trust yourself is to play a deadly game that no one has ever won. We don't bring up our children to trust themselves. We bring up our children to trust the Lord. And that's the point of the 78th Psalm that Christopher read to us earlier in the service. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. The things that He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet are unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. That's how we're to rear our children. Not as if they're blank slates, they're not. Not as if they're capable of choosing God on their own, as if they had wills that were free. Their little wills were bound in iniquity. We have to teach them the truth. Now, of course, you give reasons. The faith is grounded. We believe in truth, not make-believe. The faith is historically grounded. Jesus Christ really did rise historically bodily from the grave. And so we will tell our children the truth has nothing to fear. You may ask any question, and we'll go to God's Word, and we'll find the answer. We will tell our children that the Christian faith is the only reasonable position, not possibly a reasonable position. It's the only position that corresponds to reality. Otherwise, we cannot know who God is, who man is, our fallen nature, our need of a Redeemer, why we're here, where we're going. There's only one way that you can know those things, and that is living life under the authority of this book. Otherwise, you're left to your own autonomy, and your own guess is as good as the next person's. Nothing can be understood properly apart from the self-attesting scriptures. And so, Timothy, I remember something about you. You had a great upbringing in which you were taught the sacred scriptures by your grandmother and by your mother, and I'm praising God for that. I'm remembering that. It's, it's one of the things I most remember when I think about you, Timothy. And so, just as... Lois and Eunice disciple their son, you also disciple your children. You know, those who disciple others will look for every opportunity to point their disciples to Christ, whether it's a pastor with his flock or a father or mother with his or her children, or even a professor with his students. A.T. Robertson, the famous professor of New Testament and Greek Uh, said something in a class that so offended one of his students one day that his student got up and said, Professor Robertson, take off your coat and be ready to defend yourself. 
He was ready to go to fisticuffs with his professor. How would you teach Christ in that setting? Dr. Robertson said, okay, okay, but first let's get on our knees and pray. (laughs) You see, he took an opportunity, volatile opportunity, in order to teach his student Christ. So this old man reminisces and he remembers his own heritage, Timothy in prayer constantly, Timothy's tears, Timothy's sincere faith, Timothy's godly ancestors. There he is in this dungeon, and this is what he remembers. What a wonderful thing it is when an old godly man thinks thinks back. And some of you children and young people should take every advantage to be with older folk. One of the blessings of this congregation is that we have people who have walked with the Lord for only a short while and for a long while. People who are old in the faith and people who are not. That's very rare in a congregation. You really should thank God for it. One of my fondest memories, Vicki and I had an opportunity to spend time with Cornelius Van Til when I was a, a student at Westminster Theological Seminary. And just to sit and listen to him talk and reminisce Talk about Machen and the things that he loved. Oh, what a blessing to have been able to know Cornelius Van Til as an old man. And so Timothy remembers to build Timothy up in the faith, to edify him as he looks toward his impending death. He knows that much depends on Timothy if the work is to be carried on. And so all that Paul has said now comes to a focal point. He's dwelt on his authority. He's dwelt on things remembered largely from a shared past. Why? Why? The answer, in order to drive home Timothy's obligation to serve the church when Paul is gone from the scene. And that leads us to the third thing we see in this text. Paul's command to Timothy. We see it here in verse 6. For this reason, he's just concluded all these remembrances, for this reason, I remind you, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For this reason, literally translated, for which cause I put you in remembrance. All of these things that we now remember together press upon you, Timothy, with a solemn duty. The Holy Spirit has gifted you, Timothy, for ministry for the church. Here is God's sovereignty. God gives the gift. Here is Timothy's responsibility. Timothy, you are to fan it into flame. Now the word that is used here, anads zopurain. Zopuria is a bellows. Children, do you know what a bellows is? There's a fire and it's about to go out. You take the bellows and you can do this like an accordion and it blows air on the flame so that it grows. So that the fire becomes great again. Zopuria is bellows. Zopuron is a spark or a hot coal. And so this is one of those rare instances in which there is a word picture in the word. It's the man with the bellows blowing on a coal that maybe is about to go out. And he says, Timothy, you have a gift. Fan that gift into blaze, into a flame. The gift is a live coal, 
Now stir the flame again, keep it blazing, and the verb indicates continuous action in the present tense. Just as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, quench not the Holy Spirit. He uses a fire metaphor of the Holy Spirit. Did you know the Holy Spirit can be quenched in the Christian's life? So, if I have a gift of exegesis for serving the church, and I do not apply myself to my Greek New Testament, then I fail to kindle the flame. I fail to do what pastors are told to do in 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders lay their hands on you. But you also have a gift if you're a believer in Jesus, every single one of you. Perhaps multiple gifts for service in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. One body, many members, every member has his own gift or gifts for service. Every one of you. For some of you, it's a gift of encouragement, and you've let it go pretty low. Others, you have a gift for helping in all kinds of different settings, and perhaps you're not doing it. Others of you have a very special gift for the service of children in the church. Others have a gift, a real special gift for prayer. Some of you have a gift for giving. Some of you have a gift for getting books out into the congregation. I see that kind of close up often. What's your gift? What's your gift? What is it? You say, I don't know. Well, that's okay. Just start serving. You'll find out. You might also find out what it's not. Don't worry about it. Just get in there and serve the people of God and begin to fan into flame the gift. That's not true only of Timothy. It's not true only of your pastors here. It's not true only of the elders or deacons. It's true of you. You have that gift for the service of God's people if you're a Christian. Now, maybe Timothy is fainting. Maybe, maybe the work is taking a terrible toll on him. Maybe all of this opposition from false teachers is wearing him down. Uh, uh, maybe the persecution is getting so great that he wants to tone down the message a little bit. Maybe, maybe he's afraid to go to Rome and to help the Apostle Paul. After all, Paul's in a prison. Does he want to be there too? Maybe Timothy is wearing down. Maybe he's fainting. Maybe you are too. Maybe there's someone here and you're fainting. Timothy's not alone. But Timothy's not alone in another way. He says, look, Timothy, I'm telling you to fan the flame, but I'm telling you to do so in the power that is provided by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And in verse 7, he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He reminds timid Timothy of the power of the Holy Spirit, and he warns against the spirit of fearfulness and cowardice. The Holy Spirit works otherwise. He's a spirit of power. Didn't Paul say in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes? He's the spirit of love. That's agape. That's God's love in the heart of the believer. And he is the spirit of discipline. Sophronismu means self-control. 
the Holy Spirit gives self-control to believers in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of power, love, discipline, not of cowardice. William Hendrickson summarizes this so well, I want you to hear it. My dear child, Timothy, fight that tendency of yours toward fearfulness. The Holy Spirit given to you and me and every believer is not the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Avail yourself of that limitless, never-failing power, and you will proclaim God's truth of that intelligent, purposeful love, and you will comfort God's children, even to the extent of visiting me in my Roman prison, and of that ever-necessary self-discipline or self-control, sound-mindedness in action, and you will wage God's battle against cowardice taking yourself in hand. Does that strike anyone here? Are you immune to these words? Hendrickson goes on to say, if a person fears Satan's persecuting power more than he trusts God's ability and ever readiness to help, he has lost his mental balance. Surely Timothy has not reached that point. Let him then hold on to the truth. Let him cling to it by giving it away, as did Lois and Eunice. So maybe this is a time of weakening in Timothy's life. Maybe that's why so many commands and imperatives, verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Imperative after imperative, command after command. But maybe it's a time of weakening in your life as a Christian too. And this word would say to you, fight that tendency toward fearfulness, lethargy, unbelief, and avail yourself of the never-ending and never-failing power of the Holy Spirit. Be a part of the solution. Respond to the call to be a part of the people of God, passing on the truth in this present evil age. Be engaged in the battle. That's the point of the pastoral epistles. We are Christians. We are different by grace. We are in a warfare. We are in a battle. Get involved. Be engaged. Draw your sword. Take your shield. Put on your helmet. March. So when we started the pastoral epistles with 1 Timothy in early January, I gave some reasons for stressing the pastoral epistles. Let me summarize that briefly again as we now dive into 2 Timothy. We need to study the pastoral epistles because we need to understand the pastoral office. Because bad pastors ruin the church. And we need courageous men who will preach the truth and who will take a text and expound it and trust the Holy Spirit to apply it week after week after week after week after week. We need the pastoral epistles because of the onslaught of modern and postmodern thought. The pastoral epistles are about straightforward leadership against false doctrine in this present evil age. Not trimming the message. 
We need to study the pastoral epistles because of the call of the church to be different from the world constantly needs to be underscored and stressed. And we need to study the pastoral epistles because of the call of the Lord upon us to pass down the truth to our natural and spiritual children. Will our children know the Lord? Will the faith be passed down to them? Will we be faithful to pass down the sacred trust to faithful men who will teach the truth to others also? And you, lost person who may be here today, we're dealing with a solemn eternity. Paul is about to die and go before his Lord who redeemed him. If you were to die, where would you be? Will you enter the stream of believers by first personal faith in Christ Jesus and get on the right side of the battle? And so, Christian, the work must go on. Do you see this? Do you sit there unmoved? Do you see, Christian, that the work must go on? It is wrong for us to be concerned only with us right now, right here. We must be rightfully concerned with the generations that come after us and what will continue after we're gone. The work must go on. What is your place in this? Your place in this is to be involved in spreading the gospel and in serving God's people in his church. Charles Spurgeon said, on all sides there's a falling away from the truth of the gospel and a tendency to seek out some new thing. Now he wrote that at the height of the so-called downgrade controversy, when liberalism and unbelief was filling the Baptist Union of which he was then a part and from which he had to separate. And when there was this large group of evangelical men in the middle who said, we believe the truth, but we don't care a thing in the world about defending it. And let the denomination go to seed. But we see it now as well. On all sides, there's a falling away from the truth of the gospel and a tendency to seek out some new thing. Ancient heresies that we would have thought had been dealt with long ago, rearing their heads in evangelical settings. Somewhere we have not been vigilant. Somewhere we have not guarded the trust. Somewhere we have not passed the truth down to faithful men who would hand it off to other faithful men. And so we need preachers who will preach the word of God, expound the text, and let the chips fall where they may. You know, I think about this a lot. When I'm dead and gone, which could be years from now, it could be the next minute, when I'm dead and gone, what is left of my ministry when I am dead what is left of my ministry among you and some others, when I am dead, that will be the standard of the judgment of the usefulness of my ministry. In other words, will you pass it down? Did I expound the text? Was I faithful? Did I help others buy it? Did I form others who will do the same? And will the people that I serve see that this truth 
proclaimed will be passed faithfully to the next generation. That is the great burden of my heart. So, people of God, oh, people of God, the pastoral epistles come to us with this message, looked at from a variety of angles, this message, guard the trust, be faithful to Christ, be faithful to his church, be faithful to your church vows, faithfully pass down the truth, make Covenant Presbyterian Church a place where gifts are fanned in the flame, where truth is loved, a place where the gospel goes forth to the nations. Make Covenant Presbyterian Church, people of God, make Covenant Presbyterian Church a beachhead for biblical Christianity. And now let's pray that the Lord would do it. Gracious Father, we're just getting started in this wonderful last epistle of Paul the Apostle. How we pray that we also will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. And now there awaits for me this this great crown. Because Jesus, in his meritorious sacrifice, has won it for me. And we pray that you will bless this church, that we will be stirred to our very depths simply to be a means of grace congregation. A congregation where the gospel is believed, where the Bible is expounded, where we pray and where we worship, where we love and serve one another and take the gospel to a needy world. Help us not to lose our bearings. Help us not to lose our way. Oh God, Make Covenant Presbyterian Church a beachhead for biblical Christianity. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.